The brief excerpts of copyrighted material in this podcast are purely editorial and educational. They appear with attribution under the fair use provision of the Copyright Act of the United States, 1976. Specifically, clips from the 2021 The Beatles, Get Back documentary appear courtesy, Apple Corp. Limited, Wingnut Films, and The Walt Disney Company. Additional musical excerpts are courtesy of Sony Music Publishing. September 11, 1971. John and Yoko Lennon appear on the very popular talk show featuring Dick Cavett. They are promoting John's new album, Imagine, but must answer inevitable questions on the Beatles' breakup, only 17 months before. uh, How could uh, one girl split the Beatles, or one woman, you know? The Beatles were drifting apart on their own, you know? Do, do, can you remember when you realized that it was inevitable that you would split up? Uh, well, no, first no. It's like saying, anyone? you know, yeah. did you remember falling in love? Not quite. Yeah. No. It just sort of happens. How long was it fun? Yeah, well, everything's fun off and on, you know. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it could have gone on being fun off and on, or it could have gone worse. I don't know. It's just that when you grow up, you know. We don't want to be the crazy gang, which they might know over here, which is British, or the Marx Brothers, which is sort of being dragged on stage playing She Loves You when we've got, you know, asthma and tuberculosis and when we're 50, you know. Here they are again, yesterday, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So a long time ago I said that uh, I didn't want to be singing She Loves You when I'm 30. I said that when I was about 25 or something which in a roundabout way meant that I wouldn't be doing whatever I was doing then, you know, at 30. Well, I was 30 last October, and that's about when uh, my life changed, really. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal Sheet! Hello everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and today we are going to attempt to penetrate the spectacular 10-year career and high-profile breakup of a very famous rock band, The Beatles. And this occurs at the very height of their fame and financial success. This episode was inspired by the recent release of an eight-hour documentary called The Beatles Get Back, edited by famous filmmaker Peter Jackson. The doc covers the making of the last released album of this iconic band, and it was called Let It Be. Now, the new doc comes 52 years after their breakup in 1970. Released on Thanksgiving Day 2021, exclusively on Disney+, Plus, many tens of millions of people have streamed this doc over the past seven weeks, demonstrating that the fascination with these four young men, at least in the English-speaking world, has not really worn off. So, how is this possible after these many decades? I don't know if a scandal is hidden here or not, but it's certainly celebrity gossip and it's definitely a mystery. We're going to try to get to the bottom of this. So, today I am joined by my amazing co-host, Ellie. Ellie, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. I am really excited that the days are getting longer here in winter, and I'm good. I've had a great weekend so far. Well, I was going to ask you about uh, uh, winter in Alaska. So when you say the days are getting longer, you have like an hour of light or something? Well, now... now (laughs) It's not as bad as Iceland. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, we're we're not above the Arctic Circle, so um, we technically never lost daylight, but we do now have more than six hours of daylight, which mentally, that's that's a lot. You know, once you pass that six hour mark, it starts to feel like a more normal place to live. So yeah, it's uh, the snow is great. It's been a little cold and windy the last week, but I can't complain. It's been clear skies and it feels sunny as long as you don't go outside. <laughs> so, I mean, when you talk about the snow, I mean, how, how much snow, how cold does it get? This past week, we were in a sing, like single digits in the in the negatives, you know, like minus minus two, minus three. But the, the amount of snow really just depends on what area you're in. We haven't had much snow here in Anchorage for the last week. It's just been really sunny and bright and beautiful. But up in the mountains, they've been getting some snow, you know, in the last few weeks. So it's 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 been good for some skiing and stuff like that. We we had a pretty big windstorm last weekend, but everything's starting to recover from that. So yeah, it's um, just standard winter here. Okay, standard winter. Hmm. Okay, and of course, as usual, we are joined by our artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Happy New Year to everyone. It looks like I'm going to be propping you people up for yet another year. I need to fire my agent again. Thanks, Bernice. And today we are pleased to welcome two special guests. The first is an accomplished professional composer and a uh, professional musician himself. He's also a personal friend and colleague of mine going back to high school. His name is John Hookstra. Ah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Also joining us today as another special guest is a lifelong Beatles fan, Margot Coletti, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to both of you. Now, since we asked Ellie about weather and we are sitting here in the first week of January, Margot, you live in Boston. John lives in the tropical climate of Maine, both New England. How's your winter going so far? Uh, you know, it's going great. I think tomorrow we should get to a real, like a balmy seven degrees. We're looking forward. To <laughs> Holy moly. Well, we just had our first significant snowstorm just two days ago, and it had been so long since our last one. This was our first one this year, and I had completely forgotten all the things you're supposed to do to prepare. I mean, I did have the bread and the milk that everybody gets. I forgot to turn the car around facing out. I forgot to lift the, the windshield wipers. I forgot to get the snow shovel out of the shed. I was completely unprepared for this. I forgot to fill up the tank with gas. So now I'm all prepared. I've got a tank full of gas, a new battery. I've got the car turned around. I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> well, I would have thought you, you know, having lived in Boston for years, you'd be an, a real expert on this. And then somewhere around like September or October, you would have done all that stuff, put chains on your tires and things like that. You know, I, I just, I'm old and I forget. That's all. That's, that's the <laughs> with aging okay. Beatles fans. We are aging. Ah, okay. Good tie-in. <laughs> Moving on to our main topic, 
we try not to take anything for granted on Scandal Sheet. So, Bernice, can you refresh everyone's memory with a brief summary on who the band The Beatles were and their phenomenal 10-year career? Certainly. The Beatles were an English rock band formed in Liverpool in 1960. The four members John Lennon, age 20, Paul McCartney, 18, George Harrison, 17, and Ringo Starr, 20. They are now regarded as the most influential musical group of all time and were integral to the development of 1960s counterculture and pop music's recognition as an art form. In 1962, they agreed to be managed by rising music entrepreneur, Brian Epstein, who molded them into a first-class professional act. Their first radio hit, Love Me Do, in late 1962, propelled them to almost instant international fame. Their popularity grew quickly into an intense fan frenzy dubbed Beatlemania. Over a 10-year period, the Beatles achieved unprecedented levels of critical and commercial success through 13 albums and 4 motion pictures. They remain the best-selling music act of all time, with estimated sales of over 600 million units worldwide. So, Ellie, before we hear from our two guests, I was interested in hearing why you wanted to do this episode. John and I and, and, uh, and Margot were at least alive when this band was actually together, but you weren't even born until, I don't know, two and a half decades later after their breakup. So, but when I list, when I sent you a list of like possible topics we could do, you selected this as your first choice. Yeah, I think I'm pretty fascinated by what makes certain cultural icons so popular. And the Beatles are one of those that are so popular, especially uh, not only within the baby boomer generation, but it seems to have transcended generations after that. I I have multiple friends my age who are huge Beatles fans. And like you said, we weren't born for another two and a half decades after their breakup. So I'm, I'm always a little intrigued by that and how some artists and celebrities can just be famous for decades and decades and decades. And I, I think the other reason too, is I am very curious. One of the questions we have is, are they actually that good or were they just lucky? And I know in my industry, a lot of times we say it's better to be lucky than good. And were they just lucky <laughs> or are they actually that good? I don't know. And I, I'm, I'm not enough of a music expert to know. And so now that we have a composer and a musician on as a guest, I'm just very anxious to see other people's opinions about their talent. Well, I hope they don't put that motto on the side of the planes, you know? <laughs> I know, right? I think that would be... <laughs> <laughs> it's better to be okay now the answer is were they really that good the answer is yes yes they were but were they lucky yeah because i mean i mean it was nature and nurture you know they were kind of at this at the spearhead of music that was for and by whole you know the counterculture of the 1960s and it was this generation it was like you know, one of the first generations to completely go against the previous generation. You know, like the don't trust anybody over 30. They, they protested the Vietnam War. They were against the materialism and, you know, all the, you know, the establishment of the time. They were against everything that the older generation represented. And although I don't think the Beatles were necessarily... I mean, they didn't necessarily write about that in the same way that, like, you know, Joan Baez or Bob Dylan 
or any of the folk music icons did at the time. Not um, at first. They were still part of it, huh? Not at first. Yeah. Yeah. Not at first. Their early music was uh, sort of bubblegumish. It was uh, very much about love and holding hands and stuff like that. But it, it very soon after the first album, they started into social commentary. Yeah, yeah. But I, I agree. They were they were both lucky and extremely talented. Very good. So the listeners know, John and I are approximately the same age. I was only seven when the Beatles broke up, and I probably had heard of them, Yellow Submarine or something, but I took them less seriously than uh, the TV shows like The Monkees or The Banana Splits. But it was late in high school where John introduced me to their later albums and sort of made me see that there was a lot more to them than She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Now, Margot, I'm assuming since you're like, uh, uh, you were actually a Beatles fan when the Beatles were together. I assume you Mm -hmm. helped introduce them to John. Sure. Well, I and my sisters, I, I guess I was about sixth or seventh grade maybe when they came on the ed sullivan show and that was their big introduction to an american audience and our family watched oh, yeah. ed sullivan our family watched ed Sullivan's show every sunday night so we saw that and now here he is ed sullivan Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Let's- Close your eyes and and we knew they were coming. There was buzz about it, but our mouths were just sort of hanging out, and um, we had never seen anything or heard anything like them. So we started. Were you screaming by... like those girls in the studio? Oh no! If I screamed, I wouldn't be able to hear. And I wondered how those girls could hear if they were all screaming. That seemed crazy to me. But we that's were what I always excited. ask myself. Yeah. Yeah, we were very excited, and we loved the music. They played it on the radio, and we had a little Japanese transistor radio that we listened on. Uh, We bought the albums, but our father refused to let us play this album on on his phonograph, on his stereo system. How come? I don't know, because he... He was a big classical music aficionado. He had a huge classical music collection. But he did allow our older brother, the oldest child, who was a teenager, he did allow him to play marching band music and the Kingston Trio. That was my older brother's gig, and he let him play that, and we cried no fair no fair but he said these beatles is disgusting music it's not real music blah 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 but we wore him down 
he had, I don't know if Jana told you, the oldest was a boy and the youngest was a boy, and there were six girls in between. And we just wore him down. My mother was neutral. <laughs> but us older girls just stayed on it and stayed on it until he let us play the music, and then it was all over. So, yeah, that was Johnny's introduction. He was hearing it as a toddler once we girls got our way. Well, well, I mean, what you're calling luck was just that they were so well-placed, you know, in, in history and in, you know, it's like what you, I don't think that you could have taken what they were doing and you put it now and it would have had the same following. However, it was, it wasn't just that. I mean, the music really was that good. It really was that high quality compared to anything else that, that had really come before it. Or well, even, even in those early days though, I mean, Margot pointed out that those early albums were really, you know, very sort of poppy love song kind of Justin Bieber stuff. And then of course they evolved, but they were famous right from the get go. I'm like, yeah, oh, talk- they, yeah they, they were famous, but also, I mean, yeah, a lot of that music was just music that they could like shake their hairdos to, you know, like, uh, <laughs> and, you know, like that. But I, I, a lot of it was, uh, the music before the Beatles was really blues based. It was like fast blues and it was, you know, three chords. The melodies had a very short uh, span of notes in intervals. And so it was like deliberately simplified. And what the Beatles did was they took the, the melodic language and they, you know, like spread the, the musical intervals out. Uh, you know, they played chord changes that had not been heard before. I mean, everything was just... You know, it was just, it was about as far as rock and roll could go. Now, you know, popular music, including jazz, had done all that stuff before them. You know, like jazz had gone on to like the chromaticism of Debussy or things such as, say, like Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey, all the jazz, I mean, had all the innovations of classical music. But rock and roll was like deliberately right out of the blues. They just said, we're not going to do any of that complexity up until the Beatles. And then the Beatles music was far more complex than anything else in rock and roll. In a word, yes, they were that good. And well, and I was going to ask a question too, or just kind of see what each of our guests had to say on this topic. I think a lot of musicians start when they, when they get famous, whether it's a single musician or a band, they start with more peppy songs, love songs, things like that. And then as they start to gain a following, then they build the confidence to have more songs that make a political statement or sort of go against the current political or social atmosphere. And so the Beatles are definitely a prime example of that. They had at first these awesome songs of I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You. And then it kind of uh, continued on into more protest songs yeah, against the Vietnam War and immigration and things like that. So, uh, or I'm sorry, the anti-immigration movement. So did that confidence that they had to sort of make a political statement with a lot of their lyrics, do you think that also gave them a lot more confidence to make their music and the melodies and the chord changes more complex as well? I, I think I think the musical innovations happened beforehand. I really do. And 
Maybe I can give you an example, and I hope this isn't... I don't want to have, like, the lawyers from Apple Music, you know, like, demonetizing your podcast or anything bad, but let me see if I can... Can you hear that? Yes. Okay, now take a song, take a song like um, If I Fell, which was on the Hard Day's Night album. So it starts out, you know, like this. See if I can get the... Of course, no, I don't want to sing it. I want, okay. <laughs> So just in 20 seconds, you've had a leap of an octave in the melody. You've had chromaticism. Okay. And then there's the leap leap in the melody. And change of key. That They did those three things in just 20 seconds. And this is back in like a hard day's night when they were still doing the, I want to hold your hand. Right. Uh, it was, you know, people just didn't, you know, you didn't have that in rock and roll. I mean, you, you had it in, you, you would have had it in a Doris Day song or you would have had it in, you know, whatever, uh, a Broadway song. Yeah. Uh, like a, a, like a, a learner and low or Frank Loser or something. I mean, you would have had that kind of innovation, but not in rock and roll. And they were really the first. So, yeah. So this many years, okay, okay, so you've established very, very firmly that they were top-notch musicians, but it has been 52 years after their breakup. I mean, and they're still put on this massive pedestal. I mean, sh- I mean, are they that good that we should still sort of look at them as being uh, these icons? Well, I don't know. You know, the, the weird thing is they're musicians. You know, like St- Stephen Pinker... You know, the Harvard professor and his big thing is, is what, evolutionary psychology? And he basically said music is, is nothing but auditory cheesecake, which, I mean, in some ways it is. I mean, outside of, like, you know, bird songs that try to attract a mate or something <laughs> like that, you know, it is, it is not, I mean, music does not really serve much of an evolutionary, you know, cause. However, it's like in our, in our reptilian brains we're attracted to light and motion, you know, we're like, we're like lizards or something. We're attracted to that. And and in the same way, our brains are attracted to like melodic motion, you know, big melodic leaps or intervals, you know, and, well, and weird things in music that we haven't heard before. With all due respect to Dr. Pinker, I think he's wrong about music. <laughs> I think uh, he is wrong. Uh, and yeah. But not only that, the Beatles were not just musicians. They were cultural icons, and they were at the tip of the right. sphere of cultural change. They had right. a huge influence, and they were rebellious right from the start. I mean, that's typical rock and roll, but they were subtle and rebellious. Even their appearance, their hairstyles was bucking everything. And they were not afraid to be different. They were, you know, the first ones. They were ready to grow their beards and, you know, go to India and smoke pot with the Maharishi or whatever they did, you know. Everything they did had a 
cultural impact. So I think that's part of the reason that they are still so popular. And then, of course, the music is just timeless. It just is, like what you were demonstrating with uh, If I Fell. They packed so much into one song, into certain key songs, that they still resonate today. I remember going to see the first movie, Hard Day's Night. My parents took us older girls. My brother had no interest in it, but us older girls went. And I remember my mother, I would catch a glance at her in the dark movie theater every now and then. I would see she was totally captivated and the scenes that we would talk about afterwards weren't so much the music scenes. They were the the subtly funny, cheeky scenes of the guys in the hotel, for instance, and the dialogue. Yeah, it was it was very funny. I bought the box set. It's it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a hoot to watch. They were really good actors. I mean, they're mm-hmm. very, they're very funny comedians. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. John yeah. was hilarious. You know, yes, I think he was. It, it was that. There, there, what is that? Their Buckingham Palace uh, concert, or some palace that they, they, some concert that they did in front of the Royals, and you yeah. know, and 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 uh, John Lennon said, uh, uh, "Those of you know the if you're in the lower sections, feel free to clap. If you're in mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the higher balconies, you just feel free to rattle your jewelry. Rattle your jewelry, yes, <laughs> right. I remember. Yes, I also remember in school." In our desks, you know, they were the desks that you would lift the lid on. And in under the lid, on the inside, on the right-hand side specifically, there were these bubblegum-sized cards, uh, bubblegum card-sized cards with pictures of the Beatles. And almost every girl in the class had a picture of Paul taped to the right-hand side of the inside of their desk. I had a magazine cover size picture of John Lennon taped to my notebook so I could see his whole face every time I opened that I didn't have to peek to the side. But I was the only I was the only John Lennon fan in the class. And it was because he was so cheeky and so smart and so creative. I remember I I bought his book of uh, poetry at age 12 or something. Yeah, he was fantastic. I always loved him. And I think mom loved his sense of humor. Oh, I was going to ask. So, Margot, do you think that one of the reasons you were the one of the only John Lennon fans was because so many other young girls loved the idea of Paul McCartney because he was the single one of the group. He was the unattached one who everybody secretly thought might, you know, waltz into the classroom and sweep them off their feet. There was still a slight possibility if he's unattached. No, I think they all liked him because he was the cutest. Objectively speaking, he was the cutest, but I've always been attracted to unconventionally handsome men, even at that age. And uh, like I said, he had the personality, and I was very attracted to the personality. But fifty-two years later, so obviously you were you were a die-hard fan in the '60s. But now, fifty-two years after they've broken up, do you you still love their music that much? Do you do you play it? I mean, how does it stack up to everything else that's out there right now? Oh, sure. I I I still have, um, you know. 
Beatles uh, music. I sometimes ask, I can't even say the word because she's listening, (laughs) A-L-E-X-A. I ask her to play the Beatles. And I'll just Ah. listen to the Beatles for a long time. A few years ago on Thanksgiving Day, I had a friend over, and uh, we played that all day while we were uh, preparing our dinner. Yeah, I I still love the music. I really do. And like all music, you know, it it evokes certain memories. So I had a, a tremendously tumultuous growing up time and there are certain Beatles songs that remind me of certain sad times so I can't listen to those and others that just remind me of the best times of my life Mm. when they broke up I guess I was uh, 19 I guess 1971 was it yep and uh yeah Okay. Oh, no, it's 70, April 1970, I'm sorry. 1970, so mm-hmm. April 1970. The press release so went out that day. 18, almost 19. And, um, and that was a particularly tumultuous time, really, really extremely difficult time of my life. And I just, it barely registered that that was what was going on. So, I mean, I didn't take it to heart until a long time later, you know, when I realized what a a horrible thing it was and what a great loss. But, I mean, at the time, it it just barely, barely registered. It was such a uh, tumultuous time. Let's hold up on the breakup. We're going to get to the second half of this is about the breakup. We'll use what you just said, but let's let's finish out this idea of I just want to, you know... um, figure out you know the immensity of their success uh the level of justification and the other thing about the documentary we talked about earlier the eight hour documentary when you check the nielsen ratings over half the viewers of that documentary even though there's tens of millions of them are over the age of 55 now i guess you could say well oh of course they're going to be over the age of 55 but i guess the most remarkable thing is that the other half are under 55 so you're talking about Ellie and her, I mean, do you guys, if you're driving around, do you stream your friends, Ellie? Do you stream like a Beatles album or some, anything like that? Yeah, I listen to it a lot when I'm getting ready for work. Or um, I, I also have this personal habit of I'll just take a day and I love to pick an artist or a band and just listen to every album that they've put out from beginning to end. So album one, song one, all the way up until the last thing they released. And I've done that with the Beatles a few times. And I I do love listening to their songs. I think for a lot of people my age, their songs don't have those same connections with our personal lives like they do with uh, Margot and with a lot of the people of the baby boomer like generation. And so I think when you look at their success, you know, in another, in another 52 years, they will probably lose some of that popularity just because the audience won't have as much of a personal connection with their songs. But as John has said, they're just still so good that the music will continue to stay around, probably similar to a lot of your earlier jazz. You know, even my generation has a lot of huge, you know, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra fans. Yeah. Um, 
and they they don't have any sort of personal connection with the music as to when it was happening. They don't have a connection with the pop culture aspect of it, but they love the music and they love the quality of the music. So I think that aspect will continue on generationally. Very, um, very good point. With 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 how good it is, but the, the yeah, those personal connections that people have with the music and the times in their lives that will that will uh, stay within. The generation that was, you know, young and vibrant in the 1960s. Hey, John, quick question for you as as you, you know, went uh, to great lengths earlier to, uh, about their compositional skills. I wanted to ask you about George Martin, who produced every single one of their albums, and he's often called the fifth Beatle. But especially in those later albums, they, they really became kind of a studio band uh, using tons of overdubs and all sorts of other innovative mixing techniques. In fact, in 1966, they stopped playing live altogether. So they really were, you know, with the exception of that rooftop concert that we'll talk about. Do you give him, how much credit do you give him for, for their sound? All, all the credit. <laughs> all oh, the you credit. do? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of it. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't know if, they would have had, you know, those great ideas to use the, the arrangements. I mean, I don't know, would, would Paul have come up with the idea of using a string quartet in yesterday's, you know? Right, right. I mean, he right, just, right, of, he, he just right. played it on a flat top and sang. It's a beautiful song. Came to an, it came to him in a dream, you know? It's, I mean, completely. Uh, he just woke up the next morning and, you know, asked, hey, you know, this song came to me in a dream. Shall I play it for you? And does it sound familiar? And he go, no, we never heard that before. Let's do it, you know. But all of, you know, it, all of George Martin's ideas really gave the songs uh, their uniqueness that I think stood out from anything else that was being produced at the time. And what do you think, uh, what, what Margot and Ellie were talking about in terms of the the prospects for their enduring fame going into the future. I mean, I mean, guys like Beethoven and Mozart are just going to live forever. I mean, how long do you think the Beatles will live in the cultural mind? Boy, I'm going to say 150, 200 years. Really? Okay. Yeah. If, if I could, if I could put a number on it, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't say as I could say the same thing. You know, for like Beyonce or, you know, Cardi B or something, I don't know, you know, like 50 years from now, are people going to, you know, you'll have to, you know, you'll have to research them to see what they did. Like now you have to research, like, who were the Bay City Rollers again? Like, they had that, <laughs> I know, remember they, that. My my sisters love those guys. Yeah. And, they, and it was thought that they were going to be the next Beatles because they were oh, these really? tops from Scotland and the girls loved them and they fainted at their concerts. And, and they had that one, they were a one hit wonder. And then, you know, it's like, who were they again? You know, And so let's not, know. let's not forget Air Supply. Those guys were taking over the world uh, at oh, yeah. one point. They're going to be doing a concert in Portland. Now, that's not, that's, I didn't mean to plug that, but it's weird. They're still <laughs> concertizing, you know? So uh, let's move on to part two, which is the breakup now. Margot got us started. In 1969 and 1970, these guys were at the absolute peak of their fame and fortune. They could do nothing wrong in the public's eye. And yet, they start crumbling, falling apart. What led up to this? This has been a matter of intense speculation for many decades. 
both by the outside world and the band members themselves. Most theories posit the following influences, first, they ceased performing before audiences in late 1966. As a result, they were no longer in each other's company on a daily basis. Thus, their personal lives began to diverge. They were no longer teenagers. They were getting married and starting families. Second, the unexpected and tragic death of their manager Brian Epstein, at only 32, was a crushing blow to the four young men. Not only had Epstein discovered them and guided their immense success, he was a cherished big brother to all of them. Lastly, drug use. While they all experimented with the popular drugs of the decade, some became heavily addicted. Particularly John Lennon, who could never completely free himself from heroin in his lifetime. This dependence was a dramatic influence on his personality and behavior and it was he who ultimately instigated the breakup. So it seems like a really crappy case of bad timing. Uh, what do you think? To break up at that moment. Both you and Margot, so take turns. Well, like I said, when they broke up, I was sort of out of it. And uh, I was not attuned to what was going on. I was aware of Yoko Ono. I never blamed her for the breakup. I thought Yoko Ono was a fascinating woman. And she was a beautiful woman. And I just thought she was, you know, I, I thought of her the same way as I thought of the other Beatles girlfriends and wives oh what lovely women and they must be fabulous if these guys you know wanted their them for their partners so I never blamed her for it mm. I was I gonna say was, do you think it's unfair that people did blame her do you oh think absolutely it's absolutely okay. oh absolutely it's <laughs> yeah and the women are always to blame for everything I know that because I grew up in the I grew up in the 60s, and the women were always blamed for everything. Uh, you know, my mother was blamed for all of the, uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll behavior of her children. She, Everybody blamed her for anything that we did that was 60s-ish. But, no, I didn't blame her, and I thought it was probably a, a number of things that all happened at the same time. And at the time, I didn't know what all these factors were, but I did think it was so premature, and it was so sad that it ended when it did that they should have had another five, ten years to them. You know, when I see the Rolling Stones now, it makes me sad to think, you know, that could have been the Beatles at least for another few right. years. They could have gone on and they could have done some fantastic things together. Yeah. And Ellie, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to get your perspective, too, because you said you watched part of the documentary and, you know, clearly, I mean, I, I hear what Margot is saying, but, you know, she did sort of insert herself into their privileged little boys club. I mean, when they were doing those studio sessions, she's there every single second. Whereas all the other guys had either wives or, or, you know, partner girlfriends and they would, they wouldn't be in the studio. You know, they'd come in at the end and maybe listen to a session or, you know, you just hardly see them at all. But Yoko was really, um, that must've felt like some kind of, you know, what is she doing here? And would it have been the same thing if John Lennon had been gay and it was a man as opposed to Yoko would, would that person be catching the blame the way she does? Well, 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. So after watching the documentary, and as somebody who was not alive in the 60s, and, you know, following the whole John Lennon, Yoko Ono relationship in real time, I thought her presence in the studio was very invasive. I think it when you mentioned that George Martin is the fifth Beatle, it almost felt like she was there. <laughs> well, she um, wanted to be. I mean, she wanted to be. She's soaking up all their oxygen, man. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what the reason was for, for her to be there. And I think one, one thing to remember is, you know, before Yoko Ono, John Lennon was married and he did have a son yep. and, you know, then he had an affair with Yoko yep. Ono. And so it's definitely an interesting relationship that they have to just be almost attached at the hip all the time. I, I thought I saw some annoying relationships in college and things, but they took it to a whole new level as adults, you know, as both of them have had previous spouses, both of them had children from previous spouses. And it almost felt like they were walking around like 13 year olds, just discovering the other sex for the first time or something. Um, so it just watching her be there, it didn't seem to hamper their creative process as much during the documentary not that I would know what their creative process was outside of the documentary but it just it felt very invasive to have her there all the time but is it fair to like say that she was an even an influencer on their breakup or were there other I mean John when you did you watch any part of that documentary I mean you saw their creative process I have to confess I watched the first hour of the documentary and then I saw I had like seven or eight hours more to go. Like, <laughs> right. No, nah, I mean, I can't, I mean, it was already late at night, but I mean, this is like a congressional hearing. I can't see. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, I mean, do you see other, when you just, even in that hour, do you see yeah, other yeah, factors that broke them up that had nothing to do with anybody's spouse? Yeah. I mean, you, you see the, the, uh, you know, Paul definitely, you know, feels this maybe unwarranted responsibility to propel the music. You know, and, I, you know, I, I tend to think that Paul had a lot of the great melodic ideas, but he and John were, were just when you talk about people married at the hip, it was it was Paul and John, you know, and they were married, not just creatively, but perfect, but business wise in their publishing company, McLenn. I mean, that's why, you know, when when John wanted out, I think he wanted out really for like his own personal reasons. I, I don't I think. I think Yoko was kind of like along for the ride, but I really think that John Lennon just wanted out of it uh, because he wanted to do his own, you know, he, he wanted to just do his own songs and his own projects. But you have to call in like, you know, a stadium full of lawyers to, to eke out those details. Right. And the other guy that is only occasionally mentioned in the documentary, if you really listen to it closely. So their manager, the guy that quote unquote discovered them, you know, when they in Liverpool, when they were the quarrymen, Brian Epstein, you know, the guy that's that really the, the, the genius marketing dude, he had only what a year or 15 months earlier, either accidentally overdosed or committed suicide. We're not exactly sure which, but anyways, he was, he was gone and he wasn't all that much older than him, but he was the cement. He was daddy for these four guys. They looked up, they called him Mr. Epstein. <laughs> Can you imagine not even being able to call your manager by, by the, his first name, but they loved him. And 
I think one thing too is just seeing in the documentary, you know, they've they've been together for a a decade, over a decade if you count their time as the quarrymen and it's it's something that the the public maybe takes personally, but they shouldn't when a band or a celebrity, you know, just wants to grow up and do their own thing and do something differently. And I think if you have, you know, four people for you know, the four band members all wanted to go their own ways and grow up and spend their time with other people and, you know, become fathers or do their own individual music uh, acts. I mean, the the public can't really fault them for that. It's it's their own choice. And we can't take it personally. Well, Margot, and that's a good thing. You said how, how uh, crushing it was when, when, when it actually occurred and you heard about it. Did you ever blame them were you, did you get, ever get mad at them for breaking up i mean i know you said you wished you that, that they had stayed together as long as the rolling stones but i mean did once mm-hmm. you got over the shock was did you ever have mm-hmm. any anger no just sadness just, just sadness. sadness okay mm-hmm. I, I think it was it was particularly bad because it was paul and john i mean that was really the the rift i mean yeah george felt you know really antagonized you know, by Paul. Um, I mean, I think if, if Ringo had been the first to come forth and say, uh, you know, Paul, uh, I won't leave the band, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't have cared, you know, no offense, but I mean, it was like, you know, I want to write my own stuff, you know, like, well, I think Ringo did quit during the white album, but, but like you said, nobody cared and he came back on his own. Um, he knew what was buttering his bread, but, uh, yeah. I mean, he's, I, I love his music and, and I, and George had some amazing, amazing songs. I mean, right, two, right. Of, two of the best songs on Abbey Road were, were his. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just because, you know, John and Paul were just so closely, you know, united creatively that when they, broke up that was it i that what was the question again i'm so sorry like, like, I, I don't even remember anymore okay. <laughs> you know we just no. kind of like got off on this tangent well no i actually i had been asking Margot because she was you know obviously she was in the moment when it broke up like you know i had no idea they broke up and wouldn't have cared if somebody told me at the time uh, so i was at so i don't know if you even have a memory of that but um Oh, me? No, not really. Not really. I mean, I think they were probably already, you know, already broken up by the time I kind of was starting to conceptualize like that, that they were a band, you know? Right. Right. And, and you, you mentioned something very important too. It's not like they were just a band, right? So Bernice, can you tell us, give us a little thing on their entrepreneurial capitalist activities? Yes. In order to have more control over their music and its distribution, they created Apple Core Limited. Before Microsoft, Steve Jobs, and Facebook, these young men were ambitious, innovative capitalists. They produced not only their own records but those of other leading artists. They also controlled merchandising, licensing, and some retail outlets. Apple Core continues to exist today and makes tens of millions of pounds each year for the owners, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and the widows of the deceased Beatles. Yoko Ono Lennon and Patty Harrison. You know, it's not like you can just, like George Harrison did. I mean, you can get up and walk out of a rehearsal, but that's that's not going to be the end of it, right? I mean, it's like my wife and I own 15 buildings. <laughs> we're, we're in this deep, man. 
I I think it was really smart for them to create this corporation where they owned, you know, so much of their music and had so much say in what they produced and where they got sort of the maximum amount of money from from their earnings. And you're right, it does make it more difficult after that to just kind of separate and go their own ways. But it did really set them up for success. It set their widows up for success. It set them up for success later in life. And I think I think it was genius. And they were really the first ones to do that, if I'm not mistaken. At that scale, I think they were. Yeah, because they could, you know, they had the influence. But, you know, the other thing for everybody to comment on, you know, we, we put all this importance on their their musicianship and their they were a cultural phenomenon and et cetera, et cetera. The reality was is that here's a bunch of kids that started working together as teenagers, you know, at 18 or 19 at the time of their breakup, they're still in their mid twenties. They're still adolescents, you know, and they've been propelled into becoming multimillionaires, but they've also all the other stuff, Margot, like you were talking about the stuff that was going on in the sixties, you know, they were into drugs they were, you know, they were, most of them had at least two wives and then also cheated on the side. So, I mean, they're just, they're just out of control kids that had been given this multi-million that are expected to act like responsible, mature adults. Right. Right. Exactly. And that, that was, it's, it's like a marriage, a teenage marriage, you know, the chances of it lasting are pretty poor. And the fact that these kids, guys, were teenagers when they first got together, it, it's not surprising that it didn't last even a whole 10 years. Not at all surprising. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think another thing, too, is they were maybe some of the first celebrities to really normalize some of that outlandish behavior. I mean, even if you look at today, the the Kardashians and, you know, we love to scoff at, you know, divorces and drug use and, you know, children out of wedlock, but that has been going on now for the last 60 years. And probably even before then, it's just that it was a little more normalized with, you know, the Beatles helped to normalize all of that. And I don't, I don't know if there's. No, that's, that's a great point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, at the time, going, I mean, even something like a divorce between, it was, was sort of like, if you did it, it was hush-hush. It was, it was socially unacceptable. They, they did sort of uh, legitimize. We expect bands to break up. We expect people, celebrities to get divorced. You know, we expect all these things, like you're saying. And at the time, you didn't, right? Well, well, and I also just thought it was interesting, too, looking at all the marriages and, you know, children of of a lot of these artists when this documentary was being made they both Ringo and John Lennon had kids also Yoko Ono had a daughter and Linda Eastman had a daughter nobody in that band was more older than 30 years old and so as somebody who was about the same age that they were when they were uh you know recording that and making that documentary like most normal people do not have their lives together enough to like be having children at that point in their life today in 2021. So I just thought it was super interesting how a lot of them were sort of grown ups and then almost had this quarter life crisis and then, you know, tried to restart, you know, maybe in the case of, of John Lennon and uh, Yoko Ono and even Linda Eastman, Linda McCartney now. I mean, they just, they, some of them just kind of pressed reset on, on their lives. 
Well, that was the, uh, you know, 1969 or was it 68? There was a summer of love. That was when everything blossomed. It's when the the Beatles were hitting the height of their popularity, you know, and that Mm -hmm. counterculture was in full form and, you know, relationships. It was love the one you're with. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And the Beatles were the personification of that, of all of those cultural, the whole cultural movement, the anti-war, the free love, the the drugs. You know, the Beatles were at the center of all of it, and they helped, you know, popularize all of those things. And the meditation, they were... That's why I say they were cultural icons, and they moved the culture, helped move the culture forward. Right. So it's true. Absolutely true that um, prior to the Beatles, you know, blossoming in the, the mid to late 60s, marriages were very unpopular. I mean, divorces were very unpopular. Certainly drugs were unpopular. Free love was unheard of. And uh, all of those things changed. So it should be no surprise to anybody that, you know, with this blow up of cultural norms uh, came the blow up of the Beatles. And in your recollection, Margot, so, I mean, what was the, I mean, I know it, it had a big impact on you. I mean, to what degree did people care when they broke up? I mean, they were still selling I mean, Abbey Road came out just like right when the announcement came up that they were, or not Abbey Road, um, the Let It Be album and the movie that went with it, the first movie. And so, but those were still gigantic hits, even though everybody, partly maybe because they thought, well, this is the last we're going to get from these guys. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I mean, was there, I mean, did people talk about it? Was it on the news? Oh, sure. Sure. It it was a... um... It was a big heartbreak. It was like a a national heartbreak, the Beatles breaking up. But also, you know, it was also the height of the Vietnam War. And things Mm. were sort of, it was just after a string of assassinations. And the country was being totally torn apart. So the Beatles breaking up was, it was... Uh, just another big blow to all of the terrible things that were happening in our our country. And and maybe it was symptomatic. I don't know. But like I said, things were blowing up. Hmm. So it was just part of that whole gestalt of, well, everything's falling apart, man. Right. (laughs) Right. Hmm. So I was going to ask all of you it. So they, so they break up and they all go, to, to varying degrees, on to successful solo careers. I guess Paul and John were probably the most successful, and if John hadn't been killed in 1980, I'm sure he would have continued to record. But certainly Paul had the wings and then, you know, solo and stuff like that. But do you think that them, any of them individually, was as good as them as the sum of the parts? Did I say that right? I don't know. Ellie, what am I talking about? <laughs> I, I see what you're asking. It would mm-hmm. would either of them have been as successful individually right. as they were as as, as right. the Beatles? There is, yeah. I yeah. thought you were asking if the sum of the parts was as great as 
the original Beatles unit? And I would say no. Okay. I think each one of them were extremely talented, and they each did some fantastic, created some fantastic music. But I really think that individually, and even you know, the sum of the parts, all, all of them together, I still think this is my own personal opinion. I'd be anxious to hear what Johnny has to say about it, but I just don't think they were as great as the original Beatles as, you know, putting all of their talent together was just exponentially greater in my mind. But what do you think, John? Oh, I agree completely. I, 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 you take any, any of the four, any one of the four, and you hear what they've done since the Beatles. And it, it simply doesn't come close to what they were able to do when they were a cohesive band. Even Paul with the wings. Yeah. Yeah, even okay. even Paul. I mean, nothing nothing Paul has done since the Beatles has had that caliber of quality as his output. You know, when he was working with uh, Lennon, that's just my opinion. Ellie, I don't know if you have even listened to like the stuff that they did in the seventies, the eighties, and nineties. I mean, Paul had like a couple of bands, but. I, I just recently learned that they still have music after the Beatles. So, I mean, didn't didn't Paul McCartney perform once at the Super Bowl? He did the halftime like show. It's people got really excited. But other than that, I mean, you I would have also believed you if he had if you had said he never wrote another song again. So I, yeah, I I listen to the Beatles, and maybe that's just one of those big cultural things that'll kind of transcend multiple generations is yeah it's the Beatles it, it's not the individuals of you know Ringo Starr and and Paul McCartney or maybe it's just because I'm a lazy music listener <laughs> I'm not sure well I mean Paul Sir Paul McCartney just doesn't give up I mean he turns 80 in just a few months and he continues to work I mean he just last December December 2020 he came out with a new album all new songs and it was nominated for a number of Grammys I mean he was he was basically the producer of this new documentary, so he was involved with that. And he just released a book. So <laughs> I don't, you know, when you're a multi-billionaire, at some point I would take a break, but I guess he doesn't. I mean, after watching that documentary, I just can't believe they're not all already dead. Of lung <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I feel like I got lung cancer just mm -hmm. watching it. No, I know what you mean. Everybody's <laughs> chain smoking like crazy. And then on top of that, the stuff you don't see, you know, the syringes and the tourniquets and, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the Coke and, and everything else they were doing. They should have been dead by 30. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the only one who died of lung cancer technically was George Harrison. Mm -hmm. I saw that on Wikipedia. Correct. I was like, wow, I really yeah. thought that would have had a 100% success mm -hmm. rate with this group because just based on, on watching them. But I, hey, that's how they all stayed skinny back then. So I guess the, so. The Beatles diet. The Beatles diet. <laughs> Heroin and tobacco. <laughs> and, it, and well, yeah, well, they drank a lot of tea, didn't they? There was always somebody coming in and bringing them tea. But then they'd have a glass of wine and a stein of beer next to him too so i mean right the first thing in the morning ringo would get his glass of wine <laughs> oh, yeah liquid there you carbs go. You know? there you go just like cereal in the morning so it's amazing what you know the different things that have been called the fifth beetle you know mm -hmm. like uh, 
Yeah, uh, uh, Pre- Billy Preston was sometimes called the Fifth Beatle. You know, the, right. the, the guy who did like the the keyboards on, mm-hmm. on the last two. And that's and if you do go back to the documentary, they cover that with hours. You know, the day that he dropped in at the Abbey Road studio where they and they mm-hmm. completely drafted him to do the the keyboards for you know Let It Be and Get Back and a few other things. And they totally you might enjoy that. You know, it's like and, probably hour seven or something, but yeah, you'll have to look for it. He's the only non-Beatle who was given credit on an album with mm. the Beatles. So, and and also, uh, Thad, you know, you brought up a point. I don't know if this will fit in. Um, and I, I don't know if you'll find a place to throw this in, Thad, but, you know, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, Yoko and John being attached at the hips. I mean, the, you know, would that have been the same or would it have been as culturally acceptable if, you know, John Lennon had been gay and that had been a man? But, you know, Billy Preston was gay and he never came out ever in his mm. entire life. And it was only after his death mm. that uh, some of the managers of his affairs kind of let that out. So I, I, I think didn't maybe even know to that. go back and answer, answer your question, I don't think it would have been as acceptable had John Lennon been gay, but I I think that it maybe would have been more acceptable because he's a Beatle and he was not Billy Preston with, you know, strong religious uh, affiliations and a different following from the United States. Going back to the documentary again, I just wanted to, you know, there's a lot of drama, like in, it's broken, that eight hours is broken into three episodes, and then there's a lot of drama in the first one. But then after George comes back, they're actually having, a, it seems like they're having a lot of fun, and it is kind of cool to see if you can suffer through the time to see their, you know, their creative process and stuff. And then, of course, it ends with that that really weird but cool rooftop concert, which was covered in the original version of the film back in 1970 you know whether it's like february and they're all out there playing and and all the people below are saying what's going on and the cops have to come in and shut them down because people are complaining about the noise so we've got to have your comment what do you think of it what's going on mr beat what gives what's happening we decided to play for the public for nothing Uh well that's great bloody stupid place have a concert nice to have something for free in this country at the moment isn't it do you like them? No. No? No. Not at all. Not now. They've changed completely. Beatles are doing a free concert on the roof. Nah. Yeah, what do you think of it? I think it's very good. Why aren't they doing it in the street? They just thought you'd like to hear it. Yeah, well, what, well, we'd also like to see them. I just can't see that it makes sense. Well, I think it's a very good thing. It woke me up from my sleep and I don't like it. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. Thoughts about about the the final rooftop concert? You mean? Yeah. Or, it's it always struck me as being a weird location because I mean the only people who are really going to hear it are those people or see it are those people on the roof and everybody else is just kind of in the streets staring up and they're like ah, I think something's going is it the Beatles you know and, and they're up there you know they just they just have to you know assume you know whoever's playing and uh, you know I'm sure they could hear it but it was just. You know, a little bit dangerous because you don't want to be like standing in the middle of the street, you know, <laughs> trying to listen. Yeah. I thought, but, I mean, it's been duplicated by so many artists. Like I was uh, just going to say that. 
Yeah, yeah I think it it nice. was brilliant, and it was the first of its kind. And and like Thad said, it has been duplicated since, and it's very popular even on TV shows. You know, like uh, James Corden. You know, will ar- arrange something in the middle of the road, in the middle of an intersection. They have that kind of pop up. What do you call those flash mob things? And that have become popular since. This was like a prototype for that. I thought it was brilliant, and it was done for the movie, not for the benefit of the people in the street. So that made it a whole lot more interesting. I very much enjoyed that. I, of course, I didn't see it in person. I saw it in the movie theater, but that was such a delightful thing to watch. And see, I was going to say it almost seemed a little anticlimactic because that was their. That was their final live as a group, yeah. Together. yeah and after after seeing a lot of their ideas for what their final performance, right? The Parthenon, been, they were all this <laughs> big time stuff. Yeah, or what? What was that huge, um, you know, uh, venue by the sea in yeah. Libya? And I, I just think that maybe. Maybe the rooftop concert, even though it has gone on to be sort of just an iconic tradition that a lot of other artists carry on, I think it just seems very anticlimactic and maybe kind of puts you in the mindset of all the Beatles and that they were just done. They were just mentally and emotionally done and ready to to go their own separate ways and they didn't need a big climax at the end. I think it was totally appropriate and it was like the, the it was the end of an era and it harkened back to the beginning of the Beatles when they would play for just such small audiences. You know, if you were lucky enough to catch them, you'd probably remember it forever. And yeah, I thought it was I thought it was brilliant and very sort of symbolic, I think. You know what's interesting about that is is that you know, like you said, it that the you know, the idea of a rooftop concert, you know, has been duplicated, and and it's just become this. I mean, everybody feels the same way about it that it was that it was brilliant, and they don't feel the same way about concerts that have taken place in the Acropolis or you know other you know classically classic historical environments you know like the Grateful Dead would would do concerts all the time at the Egyptian pyramids hmm. you know but they're not you know they're not considered like oh my god this is like the greatest concert ever you know? they don't have an exclusive movie on Disney Plus on Thanksgiving Day right. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and I, for some strange reason, that was really the right move for them to do that and, and just, you know, kind of eschew all the other ideas about, a, you know, a, a concert at the Great Wall of China or something, whatever, you know, wherever, you know. So as we wrap this thing up, we're, we're over an hour now. I just want to make sure, uh, John and Margot, are there, is there anything you wanted to talk about with the Beatles that we have not, or Ellie too? You know, it's I've had... I've had several conversations with friends over who is the heart and soul of the Beatles, and it always goes back to John and Paul, John and Paul. And I I think that, you know, Paul was the heart and John was the soul of the Beatles. So it was extremely sad, you know, to know that that breakup was so much between the two of them. 
that that was a heartbreak because, as I said, they they were the heart and soul of the Beatles. I was going to suggest maybe we could each just, in case you can use this, say our favorite oh, Beatles. Oh, that's so tough, one. but no. That is tough. Possible. That is tough. It, it, it's, it's tough until I remember um, in my life. In my, my life, life, I love them all. Mm-hmm. I, the medley on side two of Abbey Road. I get. I know that's more than one song, but they're all interwoven, so it's it's like a song. I think they just call it the medley, right? But um, that's well. That I, I just me. wanted to be known, Johnny. Uh, you know, if you happen to be arranging the music at my funeral, I'd like in my life Aww. to be playing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you got it. You got it. I no, I would have to I would have to go with that on the uh, the second Abbey Road second side is the, like their their crowning achievement. And then I just think it's so amazing, like and I had never even heard it, John. Well, you had to bring it to my attention, but because there's that long, long pause, and then they throw in you know that one chord, duh, Your Majesty's a little pretty, you know. I just that kills me too. I mean, that's just such a you know, and they're they're rehearsing it in the documentary. You know, there's a lot of stuff from Abbey Road that they're rehearsing in that doc. I guess they they were doing both albums simultaneously, but anyways. Yeah, I don't think, I, I, I think it should be against the law to be able to listen to, to the second side of Abbey Road, except in order of the songs. I mean, you shouldn't be able to cut those songs up and listen to them. <laughs> that should be like a punishable offense. Okay, and I'm getting t- Ted Cruz on the hotline right now. <laughs> We're pushing this through the Senate. Okay, so this the 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 title of this podcast is Scandal Sheet, and not everything is you know uh, ripped from the headlines like you know Law in Order. Sometimes it's more of a mystery, and I didn't had no idea what Margot or John would say, or even Ellie would say about whether is there anything weird or scandalous? I mean, because my two big questions were, you know, are these guys unbelievably overrated? Has it just, just been like this cultural scam and a and B, you know, why should we care about them this many, many, many decades later? Uh, So I don't know, just go around the table. So, I mean, what do you guys think guilty or innocent or is it the crime of the century? I know we're, we're probably a sympathetic audience, but I'll give you a chance to say, state your piece. Gentlemen of the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Well, I'll, I'll bring up one point. I think it's awfully convenient that the documentary paints Paul McCartney in such a fantastic <laughs> light. And yet he's also one of the producers. Yeah, of the slight conflict of interest there is. one of the only ones still alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's be actually as fantastic of a person as the documentary makes him out to be, or is that just very clever editing? And I guess, well, I'll never know. It's not like I know him as a person, right? Um, but I, we I haven't I, seen I think, Yoko's um, edit yet. So. I, I don't. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. We need to. We need to see all of her input. Maybe we'll have her. Well, on in the nineteen seventy <laughs> version, you know, the very first one that came out simultaneously with the album, he comes off as the villain. Now it's only ninety minutes. They, you know, out of this fifty plus hours of footage, you know, and they took all the stuff where where Paul looks like a prick. So it's I mean, this is you know him may, sort of making up for for that wound. I, I think anybody who who has you know, and under, particularly an understanding of like creative collaborations 
you know, I mean, there are going to be there there are going to be some some riffs, and I I think it's just universally known that the Beatles had like huge rifts, and and I don't think people really blame it, except maybe jokingly on, you know, Yoko Ono or, you know, any one person. I mean, it, it, when you look at that, when you look at that documentary, you can see George's angst. You know, you can see Ringo having to basically put up with him, wondering if, if they're ever going to get a footing on, you know, on a song. He just has to sit silently behind the drums and wait for them to stop arguing. Um, <laughs> You know, you see, you see Paul trying to to rustle him in like a like a, an Australian sheepdog, and you know George is is you know obstinate, and you know like John and Paul are fighting. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody. I mean, it's kind of like you know this. Like George said, this too shall pass. You know, um, all things must pass, and and uh, you know the Beatles are no different. So. I, 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 I think, yes, they were that brilliant. It was not, you know, it was not some scam, even though it was not like a Paul is dead scam. They really were that brilliant. But I think that we should, I think musicians should care about them because if they want to see how really good music was made, they should definitely check out their songs. Well, good final word. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time and so much time to come and talk to us on this subject. Thank you, Margot and John. Thanks. Thanks for having Thanks. us. This was fun. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's time to spark a J and find a tourniquet and a syringe. Ellie, Bernice, and I want to thank our very special guests, Margot Coletti and John Hookstra, for their great insights into the Beatles verse. You can find links to John's YouTube channel and many examples of his great musical work in the liner notes of this episode. So we hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at ScandalSheetPod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at ScandalSheetPod.com. We'll see you next time on Scandal Sheet! Good night, Paul. Say good night, John. Good night, Paul. Good night, John. Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.